Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. The reading this morning will be Psalm 67. I'll be on the ESV. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase, God. Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Thank you, Jeff. Please be seated. We are in Psalm 67. Psalm 67 assures us that one day the nations that God rules over that we are making disciples of will be glad and sing for joy. The Psalms assure us that the end that God has designed us for will be achieved and accomplished. And one day, every nation is going to sing for joy and be glad over the resurrected Christ, over the rule of God. And for us, and for me, that assures me in this moment, no matter what I see, no matter what I am experiencing, the end game of God will be achieved. And so right now, in this moment, you and I, as the people of God, can be encouraged, can be comforted. We have been, over the last eight weeks, been looking at the idea of missions, the mission of the church. What are we about as a church? Well, the local church is God's means of covering the earth with a knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. And this objective initially came to Adam and Eve, then through Abraham and culminating in Christ to all the nations. The story tells the reader that the nations that God rules over his church, we are to be making disciples of. And today we'll note in Psalm 67 that those very nations shall one day be glad and sing for joy. The birth of the church on the day of Pentecost is visibly showing the global spread of God's glory. We have seen that in our study of Acts 2. And it is through the global spread of the church that his vision for the world, for creation, comes to fruition. And the book of Acts in our study traces for the reader the steady advance of God's glory through the spreading of local churches with elder leadership. This advance of God's glory is the mandate for mission, and it does not stop until the end of the age, and thus right now you and I are living in an unfinished task. Yet one day that task will be finished, and the nations shall be glad and sing for joy, and the vision and victory of God shall be completed. The very nations that he rules over, we are to be making disciples of, and they will one day be glad and sing for joy. And our present sermon series over the last two months is noting this idea. We began two months ago in Psalm 22, and now we will finish this study in Psalm 67. Over the next several months, we will be looking at the Psalms in particular, but we are considering Psalm 67 this morning. So let us pray. Father, we as a church are Trinitarian in our understanding of your singularity of essence and plurality of person. 
We believe the distinguishing quality of the Father in contrast to the Son and Holy Spirit is found in the way you relate one to another in the economy of your relationship internally. We believe that this economy describes the manner in which you relate to one another in the functioning of the Trinity. And we believe the Father is said to have sent the Son and the Son together with the Father send the Spirit. We want to be teachable as to our lack of understanding concerning this triunity and humble in the enormity of this mystery. We delight in not knowing but able still to believe. And thus we address you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, fully recognizing the role each of you have in the functioning of the Trinity in the outworking of your plan. We believe that the vision and mission of the church flows from this Trinitarian council, and we humbly receive from your word to our minds this mission. Thus, this morning, we pray in our gathering that you would open blind eyes and lazy hearts, that we would be awakened from the lethargy caused by our current circumstances overbearing concerns. And we know that without you, we can do nothing. We know that you have sent your son into this world to be our savior, and thus we are a blessed people. We know that you reign. So in this moment, as we humble ourselves under your word, guide us, teach us, cause us to yield to you. Father, we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and through the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We began our study in Psalm 22. We are finishing it in Psalm 67. What I'm wanting us to see in our study of the scripture is how the Bible tells this single story and at the center of this story is Jesus Christ. From the very foundation of the world, God has been the great initiator of mission. Now, you and I define mission narrowly, but God's design has always been that the earth would be covered with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. This is his design. This is his intent. And you and I, as the church, are fulfilling that vision, that mission. It is vividly portrayed by the acts of God, both in the Old and New Testament. And when we isolate the part from the whole... We destroy the story. And thus we have to see that what we are doing in our study of Psalm 67 or Matthew 28 or Acts 2 or Luke 24 or Genesis 1, 28, all of that is interconnected because all of that is telling this single story with Jesus at the center. And we are trying to note that in our study. When we come to Psalm 67, we don't know who wrote the psalm. Many would suggest it is David but we don't know for sure. But we do know that it was written during the Davidic monarchy. We do know that the author knew the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, really well. He's basing what he says in Psalm 67 on the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12 and also this Aaronic blessing found in Numbers 6. And both the covenant to Abraham and this blessing from Aaron were recited daily. They were ingrained in the very psyche of the nation. So Psalm 67 is reflecting the mindset of the people of Israel. We also know that the nation of Israel, as a recipient of this blessing in Genesis 12 and number 6, were witnessing to the greatness of God. They were to be a witness of Yahweh through whom the nations would be blessed. And this is tied to that whole idea of the vassal treaty that we have considered in Exodus chapter 20. But the fact that they were witnesses was conditional. And as a witness to the nations, the nation of Israel would fail. It was very, very subjective. 
But there was also another aspect in which they were the recipients of Psalm 67. And I call that the womb promise. We can trace from Genesis 12 all the way up to Jesus the fact that God would give them a woman's seed that would crush the serpent's head. We can trace that all the way through. That's part of this royal gift covenant that we have referenced in the past. This was objective. It was unconditional. And as such, because it depended on God, the nation would indeed succeed. But the nation of Israel was a recipient of a blessing. That blessing, as found in Numbers 6 and in Genesis 12, would be a blessing not just to the nation, but to the nations. And that's what Psalm 67 is going to celebrate. But Israel, as a nation, always struggled with Gentile inclusion. We see that in all these stories that are told throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. We see that in the story of Jonah being sent to Nineveh. Jonah chafed under the idea that the gospel or good news would go to the people of Nineveh, pagans, Gentiles, persecutors, oppressors, and that they would somehow hear this good news and respond. We see it in the story of the Good Samaritan, the woman at the well. We see it in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. What do we do with these Gentiles who are now being included into these promises? So they struggled experientially with what they were experiencing, but theologically, the nation of Israel was on point. They knew, and this psalm expresses theologically what God was doing to the nation, through the nation, to the nations. And they, as a people, would sing this prayer, this idea, this theology. One of the default books that we read when we have no other idea what to read are the Psalms. And why? Well, because they resonate with us experientially. And we look at the Psalms as expressing our experience. But the Psalms are a theological hymnal. The Psalms are rich in theological content. And the reason why they resonate with us is because they are resolved in what is true, what is immutable. They tell us something about who God is and what God is doing on a grander scale. So something like Psalm 67, although a psalm, which is a song, which resonates with us emotionally, it is theologically rooted. It's theologically sourced. And the psalm assures the reader, the singer, that the purposes of God through the people of God, is going to be achieved even as we struggle through it. I mentioned how this psalm is sourced in Genesis 12 and in number 6, and I'm wanting to explore that just a little bit. It has this link to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where Abraham is told, through him the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And almost anyone who studies their Bible on a consistent or regular basis understands that Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is the Abrahamic covenant. That covenant has three aspects, a land, a seed, a blessing aspect. The blessing is that God would bless the nation and through the nation to the nations. But Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Abrahamic covenant, is part of the seed promise of Genesis three fifteen. That promise given to, actually given to the serpent and then Adam and Eve, is a royal gift covenant. It's an unconditional covenant that God is going to do something to resolve the problem or rescue his people. Then it is reiterated in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And you see and hear this language of that Abrahamic covenant in Psalm 67 when it says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. What God promised to do in Genesis 12 is now being sung 
about in Psalm 67, and we'll see its fulfillment later on in the New Testament through Jesus. The second aspect of Psalm 67 is not only Genesis 12, but number 6. Number 6, 22 through 27, has this Aaron, Aaronic blessing. God gives it. It's in the chapter of the, the vow of the Nazarite, but God gives it to Moses. Moses tells it to Aaron, and Aaron then gives it to the people. It says in number 6, 24 through 27, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. And many of us have watched on YouTube the singing of this song, of this blessing. And I've heard it a gajillion times. And it is this ironic blessing that Aaron would give to the people And it is through the people receiving the blessing that they would then be a blessing. What I find interesting about number 6, 24 through 27, that particular ironic blessing, is that we almost use it, as the Israelites probably do, as a rabbit's foot. We think if we simply pray the prayer, it'll take place. But it has intentionality behind it. There's a theological context for it. And what Psalm 67 does is creatively integrate the priestly blessing of Israel and the ancestral promise of a blessing to the nations in order to project a renewed vision of the way things were meant to be from the beginning. It was always God's design that through the seed promise, the nations of the world would be blessed. The seed promise is coming to Israel through the line of Judah and through Judah in Christ and through Christ to the nations. God is fulfilling that promise and the blessing of number six is echoing that promise. But in our understanding of Psalm 67, we, under, we have to understand Hebrew poetry. I'm more along the likes in my, my uh, poetic appetite. I will not eat them in a house. I do not like them with a mouse. I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. I'm more of the Dr. Seuss presentation of poetry. But what's interesting about what I just read to you from Dr. Seuss, Green Eggs, and Ham That's actually called climactic parallelism. He's actually building off and then culminating in, I don't care with whom or where I eat green eggs and ham. I don't like it, Sam, I am. Well, you have to understand Hebrew poetry. And when you look at Psalm 67, it it enables you to understand what the psalmist is actually saying. And we're going to come back to that a little bit concerning the psalms. And it'll be expanded on all summer. But each of the stanzas, each of the verses inside Psalm 67, which is true of almost all the psalms, are somehow constructed along the lines of parallelism. And it is important to note because there's a primary idea that each verse or the psalm is stressing. As I've already noted, though, the psalms resonate with us. And why? Well, because they're strongly experiential. We read the psalms and we say, well, that's me. That's my experience. But the Psalms are more than that. The Psalms are the songbook for Israel. And it's not just a shared experience, but they are theological in their formation. So the psalmist and the congregation or the nation would sing these Psalms. And they sang of a shared experience, but also of a theological footing that was sourced in who God is. So the Psalms speak to us in heart language But the Psalms are a theological hymnal that resonate 
in our souls. That's why there's such depth to the Psalms. We read these Psalms and we think, wow, I, I know what the psalmist is going through. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But they are a theological hymnal. And what's amazing to me, as much as the nation would struggle with Gentile inclusion, here they are singing of a day when all the nations will be glad and sing for joy. They sang better than they felt. They knew better than they felt. When you look at the psalm, Psalm 67, it says to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. And I think we have to make sure when we read the psalms, we're reading them as songs. And and you think most of us don't pick up the songs we just sang this morning and read them and think, wow, you know, that really affects me deeply. It affects us deeply because we take those, those words and we couple them with music. And that combination of words and music is what resonates within us. What I equally find interesting, if, if you're like me, I listen to Christian music quite a bit. Most of the time, I have no idea what they're singing about. I mean, God, you know, this generic God thing. But I'm really not concentrating on the words. So that I could be listening to a song and thinking, that's really good, and then find out it's theologically empty. You know what I'm saying? That's why we guard the theology we sing through our songs, because songs are so impressionable. They so resonate within us. But here are the psalms. The psalms are not simply stanzas. They're something that are supposed to be sung. And in the singing of it, they capture our hearts. They are to capture our minds. Now, when you read the psalms, Psalm 67, the psalms are much like Proverbs. They're not clustered around themes necessarily but they're defined by the use of Hebrew poetry and intentional parallelism, and you'll see this in just a moment. But you need to know that a psalm is a song, and that parallelism, this idea of structure, is very prominent inside of the psalm itself. In fact, if you look at Psalm 66, in Psalm 66, 1 through 4, you you hear this similar theme in verses 1 through 4. It says... Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth. And and again, remember this inclusive nature of the Psalms. And the Psalms are simply reflecting the theology that began in the garden, is echoed in the Abrahamic covenant, and culminates in Jesus. It's what Jesus is causing you to come to pass. All the earth, verse 4, worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. And, and in my Bible, you have the word selah. Selah is a word that's not necessarily read, but it means to pause, to reflect, to now meditate. And you think of what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 66, and now our focus, Psalm 67, and it's saying to us, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Are we seeing that right now played out in real time? We see nations in massive conflict. We see nations that are oppressive. We see nations at war. We see nations in confusion. But what can we be assured of as the people of God? One day, all these nations that are persecuting the people of God inside that 1040 window... All those nations shall be glad and sing for joy. And I'm not talking about a universalism where everyone at the end will be saved. 
I'm saying of a universalism where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and it will be to the glory of God the Father. That's where all this is headed. So as frustrating as it can be for us as people to live right now in this world, let us be assured that the vision of God and the mission of God is advancing where all that is crooked will one day be thoroughly straightened and that will happen when Jesus comes. But you and I, as the people of God, are on mission. God's not losing. And because we are aligned with him, because we are his people, we're not losing. But now let's quickly, and I do believe it is quickly, look at this psalm. There are three parts to the psalm. In stanzas or verses, you have the blessing. And then in verses 3 through 5, you have the result of that blessing And then in verses 6 and 7, you have the assurance or the promise. But let's begin with this idea of the blessing. Inside of stanzas or verses 1 and 2, you have this, what is called synthetic parallelism, where each of the lines take the thought forward and fuller. So when you read verse 1, it says, May God be gracious to us, that's the idea, Now the author of the psalm is going to push it forward and fill it out. May God be gracious, and in his graciousness, what is he going to do? Bless us. And this is reflecting that blessing received by Aaron, now given to the people. Be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. To shine upon us. The idea of his face or countenance and blessing or salvation, and knows what happened. Let me finish this thought real quickly. But notice stanza 2 then, verse 2. It says, may God be gracious. When God is gracious, I am blessed. When I am blessed, I am in his presence. His face is now shining upon me. When God's presence is upon me, I am a blessed person. And it is the presence of God when I am in the presence of his face so that, as a consequence, so that your way, verse 2, may be known on earth. And this is synonymous parallelism where the second line simply reiterates the first line. Your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. The psalm is simply saying, here's the blessing. The blessing is when God is present, people are saved. If God is not present, people are not saved. But the nation of Israel was to be a blessed people, how? By the presence of God, his face shining upon them. And when God did that, then all the nations of the world will be blessed. They were recipients of this. This is the blessing. Now, the idea of his face or countenance and blessing or salvation, all of them are working together and are saying the same thing. So when you talk about his graciousness or his face, his way or save the nations, all that is saying the same thing. When God is present, his face is shining upon us. When God is present, we are a blessed people. When God is present, the nations are being saved. When God is present, his way is being made known on the earth. When God is present, his glory is spreading to the furthest reaches of the world and will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. When God is present, we have this. The psalmist will write, you make known to me the path of life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611, when God is present. Throughout the Psalms, the psalmists use the language of face to shine. 
It's noted in number 625, this ironic blessing. It's noted in our psalm, Psalm 67. It's seen in Psalm 3116. Make your face to shine upon your servant. And then now notice, make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me. Save me. Face, save. Psalm 80, verse 3, verse 7, verse 19. O God, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Psalm 80, verse 7. O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. So when the psalmist in Psalm 67 says, God, be gracious to us, bless us, cause your face to shine upon us, he's using poetic parallelism to move the idea forward and fuller. When God is present... His vision for the world will be achieved so that your way may be known on earth. It's the same language, the same idea being perpetuated. And when your way is known on the earth, your saving power will be known among all the earth, among all the nations. The blessing. There has always been a universal aspect to God's redemptive activity. God is simply not saving a select ethnicity. God is saving people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And the knowledge of who he is will permeate the created order. The redemptive work of Christ is to be made known among all the nations. So you begin the psalm with the blessing. When God is gracious, we are blessed. We are blessed because his face shines upon us. When that happens, then the nations will know his way. When that happens, the nations will be saved. So he begins with this blessing. And he uses this synthetic parallelism to move the thought forward. And he blessed Israel so that they would be, through them, a blessing to the nations. Now notice stanzas 3 through 5. Stanzas 3 through 5, we see the result of God, in a sense, showing up. And notice verse 3, notice verse 5. We have what is called synonymous parallelism. It's simply two lines saying the same thing. And verses 3 through 5 are repeating themselves. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you, verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. When the face of God shines upon his people, praise is the result. When God steps in and moves and saves the nations, when the nations see the face of God, then praise breaks out. Now, notice the structure that the psalmist uses. Verses 3 through 5 are, in a sense, bookends, but they're funneling us to verse 4. Verse 4 is the point of the psalm. Verse 4 reads, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity, with justice, with righteousness as a properness to God stepping in and guide the nations upon the earth. This is a... Psalm where nations, where the peoples, where the earth are stated. Nations are mentioned three times, the earth four times, the peoples five times. God has always had a global purpose. And God has acted in such a way as to restore things to what he designed them to be. This is how it works. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. And verse 4, stanza 4, is... The point, as a result of God showing up, the nations will be glad and sing for joy. And why? 
because they will be judged with justice and they will be guided as a nation. Justice or judge and guide are working in synonymous parallelism. They're the same thing. God will one day judge the nations with justice. God will one day guide the nations with justice. The reason why the nations will praise his name and be glad is because the face of God is now shining as a consequence of that presence. He will judge with justice the nations. He will be guiding the nations. What he has done for the nation of Israel, he will do for the nations of the world. The nations that he rules over, we as a church are to be making disciples of, with the result that the nations will be glad and sing for joy. There are three things about the nation stated in the Psalms, and I will not belabor this point too much because it's repeated throughout the Psalms. But notice Psalm 22, verse 28. We've noted this already, but it says, For the kingdom is Yahweh's. He is the governor among the nations. He is the one who will judge with justice. He is the one who will guide the nations upon the earth. The nations are his inheritance. And and what I'm wanting us to do is think about the current political scene taking place in our world today. And we're very myopic as to what's taking place in the world. And we might realize that some nations are gathering and having conferences and seminars. But as a whole, we're oblivious to what's going on. But there is a huge world out there, bigger than us here at Walkershaw Bible Church. But that world out there will one day be inherited by him. He is ruling over all these things. Our God does indeed reign. And it's not simply speaking of something that is still yet in the future. It's speaking of something that is currently taking place. Our God reigns. Not only will the nations be his inheritance, but the nations will one day serve him. Psalm 72 verse 11 says, Yea, all kings, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. I take great comfort in this. I watch the news on occasion. I listen to what's taking place. And I have said before on multiple occasions, I can lose my mind. And we still have it pretty good as a people. But let us realize that the nations are his inheritance. The nations shall one day serve him. There is no nation out there that will rebel against him and win. God will win. And the third thing we see in the Psalms concerning the nations is that they will one day worship him. Psalm 22 verse 27, our initial psalm read, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. So here is the psalmist. And the psalmist in Psalm 67 is echoing language that's found throughout. He's reflecting theology that was a part of the nation's psyche. Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. Number 6, the Aaronic blessing. But the intent of all that is that the nations, when God fulfills his purpose, the nations shall be glad and sing for joy. What assurance do we have? And notice how the psalm ends. Here's the promise that we live with right now as the people of God. So the psalm begins in verses 1 and 2 with the blessing. 3 through 5 gives us the result of God showing up. The peoples will praise him. Now notice stanzas 6 and 7. It's really, it's called this uh, chiastic parallelism. 
where the first stanza in verse 6, notice, it says, the earth has yielded its increase. Now notice the second stanza in verse 7, let all the ends of the earth fear him. A statement is made concerning the earth. And then the second stanza of verse 6, God, our God, shall bless us. Verse 7, God shall bless us. So it begins with this promise. There's coming a point in time when the earth shall do what it was designed to do. The curse shall be removed, it shall be lifted, and we will go back to an, a garden state. And everything will be as it should be. That's what's going to happen. The promises of God will be fulfilled. And verses 6 and 7 inside of the psalm assure us that what God has promised will indeed come to pass. The neat thing about all this is we look at this idea and we know what this meant to them as a nation. They were to be the recipients of the seed promise. They were to be a witness. They would be the womb through which that seed promise would come. And through them to the nations, they would be blessed. We know that. So where are we right now in this narrative? If we took time, which we won't, in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 60, we know the account. Stephen is going to be killed. He's going to be martyred. When Stephen preached at this moment in time, he began and he, re- re- he rehearsed and reviewed for his persecutors Israeli history. He began with Abraham. He ran Jewish history all the way through Moses, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, Joshua, David, Solomon. He showed them their own story. But he culminates in Christ. (laughs) He says, this whole story that you and I have been a part of from day one, that whole story is going to culminate in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And when Stephen said that, his audience went intellectually crazy. They attacked him. They're gnashing their teeth. They're just infuriated. And they pick up stones and they kill him. But the whole story of Israel culminates in Jesus. The royal gift covenant and the ironic blessing are both fulfilled in Jesus. It is in Jesus that we have the very presence of Yahweh in our midst. When you think of passages like John chapter 14 verses 1 through 11, and I'll focus only on verse 1 and verse 9, Jesus begins saying to his disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. You have believed in God. Now just as you have believed in God, all that direction and energy that you have believed in God with, now believe in me. Your focus has been, as it were, Yahweh. Now believe in me. Why? Well, what we have in verse 9, Philip makes the statement, show us the Father. And Jesus says, well, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. When it says, have your face shine upon me, well, in Jesus, God's face has shined upon us. We're seeing God. Jesus is the blessing. And because Jesus is the blessing, one day the nations will be glad and sing for joy. He is the fulfillment of the Genesis 12, 1 through 3 promise. He is the fulfillment of this royal gift covenant in him. Realize this. A day is coming when the 1040 window will no longer exist. Realize this. A day is coming when the 414 window will no longer exist. The day is coming when an 820 imbalance will no longer exist. Why? Because in that day, all the nations will be glad and they will sing for joy. 
In that day, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. In that day, everything is as it should be. Right now, you and I live in a very crooked and broken world. We know that. We know that at Acts 2, we know with his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension, things are beginning to be set right. But we're still living in a period between the already and not yet, between fulfillment and consummation. But we can have hope, knowing that one day the task itself will be finished. And one day all the nations will be glad and they will sing for joy. And why? Because God is a promise-keeping God. Let me conclude with three thoughts. First of all, there is no blessing where there is no God. If you try to live your life in the absence of God, if you say no to God, you're not going to believe in Jesus Christ as his only begotten son. You don't believe in his death, his burial, his resurrection or ascension. You don't believe in that physical bodily resurrection. If you reject Jesus as your savior from sin and death, if you say no to the spirit, there is no blessing. There is no blessing where there is no God. We are a God-centric, a theocentric fellowship. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Thus we have asked, shine your face upon us. And he has answered that in Jesus, and we accept that. The second thing is this. God has assured us that all the nations of the world shall one day praise his name. So when you watch the news, or you read the news, or you hear the news, and you begin to get frustrated... Just remember that every nation is one day going to be glad and sing for joy. One day every nation will bow their knee. Every nation will confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord and it will be to the glory of God the Father. We are on mission. We exist in an unfinished task. We are told to occupy till he comes. But we are not defeated. We are not playing defense. We are playing offense and moving forward the vision and mission of God. And finally, number three, we have the blessing of God. You and I are a blessed people for the blessing of the nations, the blessing we have received. Now we are to work from and through to those around us. Whatever we have is to be leveraged for the spreading of the gospel, which is for the spreading of his glory. And that's what we do as the people of God. So when we think of missions, We think of something where every nation will be glad and sing for joy. And we have the assurance and the promise of God that that will indeed be fulfilled. So as we move forward, let us understand that we are working from victory and not simply for victory. That has already been secured for us at the cross. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, we have asked initially that you would open blind eyes and enable us to understand your word to us. We have learned there is no blessing where there is no God. If you are absent from us, there is nothing. And thus we take great comfort and encouragement knowing that you are with us and that you will complete your plan for all things. You assure us that all the nations of the world will one day praise your name. In your good grace, you have given to us Jesus. Help us to see how we are a part of your great mission and to see our resources as your means of spreading of the gospel for the spreading of your glory. 
Father, we do pray that you would quiet our anxious hearts. Help us to rest in you each and every day. Father, enable those who come with overwhelming sorrow and loss to see that you are enough in this life and in the life to come. Father, thank you that we can be a part of this fellowship, this family of families. Thank you, Father, that there is strength in numbers. And so we are always yielding to you. Thank you, Spirit, for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thus, we do pray in the intercessory work of the Spirit and Son. In Jesus' name, amen.